Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there, welcome to another fine episode of the podcast, The 1% Better Show, and uh, delighted to have you along. In the last month, the month of April, it turns out to be the most popular month uh, since I've started doing the show from a listener and download perspective the numbers that have come in uh, have topped any previous month that's obviously to do with a growing listenership which is brilliant and also the fact i've released a couple of extra episodes during that time without doubt pushes it up as well the podcast was number two in the itunes slash apple charts apple podcast charts in the last couple of weeks Now, that's the highest it's ever been, as far as I know. It could have gone to one. I I didn't check it that often, but when I did see it, it was up there. And that's really cool. I do get emails from time to time asking me if uh, I would like to get my podcast promoted and reach number one easily in many countries. So I decide against that. So when it does get up there, it means some people are checking it out that haven't done so before or alternatively, somebody is promoting it on my behalf somewhere else so whatever way it's nice to see it there i've got a couple of emails when folks just stumbled across it because it's high up in the charts to say i didn't know about this one i didn't know you were from ireland or from cork i really enjoyed this episode so that's that's lovely that makes it so much uh, more worthwhile and enjoyable to hear that so thank you Uh, just a, a thank you for checking it out for making it improve from a download listenership perspective it means a lot and uh, please keep doing it another thing i wanted to call out in the next few weeks in cork i hope probably june time frame actually to run a podcasting workshop on a how to create your podcast and i'm working on that as we speak Uh, had posted or tweeted about a few weeks ago it is going ahead i've uh, partnered with the cork chamber to do it in an evening at some stage uh, in june and hopefully because they're going to be helping me put it on that we'll get a venue and some refreshments and keep the costs extremely low i push for free i don't know if that's going to happen but let's see uh, last week i released a couple of episodes hope you checked them out one on mindfulness and meditation and consciousness with neil seligman and then the one with susan bennett of surrey voice fame very interesting some good ones there i recorded an episode this week that i was hoping to put out live but was unable to it was all on sleep a deep dive on sleep and i definitely learned a few things i didn't know beforehand so we'll share that in the near future and hopefully you'll take something from that as well so this week's episode is one i recorded probably maybe end of january february time frame and it was one that i had a an interest in kind of exploring for for a while but didn't expect to get to talk to somebody in this space it's with dr william binder and he is a plastic surgeon or a cosmetic surgeon in beverly hills and when you think of beverly hills and plastic surgery you think of movie stars actors musicians famous people and all of that so i did touch on a little bit about that with dr binder he's been doing this for 30 years but what was fascinating from the conversation was more about his approach how he considers himself very creative innovative 
and we talk about the concept of having great hands that not everybody could be a plastic surgeon some people can be good but you need special natural talents he talks about how he visualizes an operation beforehand and kind of steps through that very interesting and he mentions a movie he gets all his up-and-coming surgeons to watch it's about patience and practice and focus I really, really enjoyed it. Hopefully it's something you will enjoy too. He also is credited for discovering Botox. As an innovator, he really had to push hard to get that approved, to get it to be something that could be used. And that's an interesting story within the podcast as well. So that's the one with Dr. Binder. It's coming up after this. I will wrap it to say, look, thanks again for listening, for downloading, sharing, subscribing. If you haven't done that, I'd appreciate it as well. So you get all these Uh, without having to go in every friday morning and pull one down it's all very much appreciated from me to you please keep the emails coming the dms checking in on any of the socials that's all good i want to hear what you're enjoying what you would like more of and i will hopefully put some of that into action one thing last word is you probably really take something from some of these shows like when you're reading a book like when i used to read a book and say oh that was really interesting but don't take action to write it down and maybe put a plan in place to embed that into my own habits and my own rituals to make myself better i've managed to take a much more active approach to learning over the last few years and that's when the real growth happens so my leaving comments before you listen to the episode is please do take one or two things away from any of these shows take action write about it put a plan together follow it methodically over a period of time and you will improve you will get better and i think that's what this is all about and hopefully for those of you that are doing that you can see the the improvements okay that's it i'll let you enjoy the episode with dr william binder have a great day weekend and i'll talk to you again next week good luck welcome folks to another episode of the one percent better podcast and it is a, a, a special one, one that I'm, I've been looking forward to for a while. I think it's been in the works for a while. Um, I'm moving over again to Hollywood, to Beverly Hills, I think, per, to be precise. And I'm talking with uh, Dr. William Binder. Or, or welcome to the show, Dr. Binder. Thank you, Rob. So you're a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. And I guess from the outside looking in, that probably would evoke a kind of celebrities and stardom and and making you know people look their absolute best what's maybe maybe from your perspective talk to me true about what you do on a you know on a daily basis and i suppose the 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 value or the purpose that you have within your work oh the value the purpose and what you do it's it's just like um pretty much anything else anybody does in their job Uh, If you look at plastic surgery or you look at the pomposity of it in terms of Beverly Hills, you're looking down the wrong tunnel. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Your your perspective of going to work every every day and doing the best you can at what you do. Um, It's still, it's still pretty mundane. It's still uh, taking care of patients it's still going to work and doing surgery mm-hmm. and doing the best you can every day and uh, fulfilling those goals. Every day, it's fulfilling a goal. Uh, you, you can't treat one day less than the other. Every, every day has got to be an epic one. 
in terms of each patient. It doesn't matter if they're from Beverly Hills or from Pacoima. It doesn't make any difference to me. Yeah, and I think it's important to, I guess, to debunk some of the, the misconceptions that people might have. So it's, it's good, it's good to, to start off with that. Where you're at now, was this part of your plan from your early years when you, you, know, when you were growing up? Was it the world of medicine? Was it a doctor? Maybe talk to me about your early years, your early career. Um, I guess one of the people that I had always looked up to when I was growing up as a kid was my uncle who was a doctor. Uh, he was the family doctor, and obviously the family looked up to him. And uh, for all of the problems we had in medicine or any of the family members, okay, we have a problem. We're going to go to my uncle. He solved the problem. So I, I always looked at him uh, being in the medical field as a problem solver. It was very intriguing Mm -hmm. um, one of the things about going into medicine is um, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. Uh, medicine is you can be a researcher, you can be in medicine, you can be a prescription writer. But then again, there's this, this whole thing about actually doing a procedure, mm -hmm. which is surgery. And um, one of the interesting things about this, I think you'll find interesting, is um, what makes a good surgeon. Mm. Um, the, I have residents and fellows that come here all the time, and I make them watch a movie before they can operate with me. Okay. And it's called Hero Dreams of Sushi. Okay. I think it's, I've heard of it. It's the same thing no matter what you do, okay? Hmm. If you're going to be the best at what you, what you do, it doesn't matter whether or not. So Hero is, is considered the number one sushi chef in, in the world. Yes. The little station in Tokyo. Well, what makes him the greatest sushi chef? It's, is, it, is it talent? Is it an adaptive uh, thing in his brain? Is it his tenacity? Is it his um, uh, perseverance toward detail? Um, it's all of, all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, the, the tenacity that he has in order to be the best he can be. Um, but it's a very interesting expose on um, uh, that bell-shaped curve, right? Everybody, no matter what field you are in, it's the bell-shaped curve. So I'm in Beverly Hills. Um, I'm sort of in, in this building. There's a lot of plastic surgeons. And I would consider myself necessarily the elder statesman, but I do have a lot of younger surgeons coming here asking me a lot of questions about what to do on certain cases and things like that. There's obviously no lack of, uh, of experience that, that gets you through some of the tough times. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I always make the young surgeons actually watch this movie. Mm. And um, um, it, it's a very interesting experience because they, um, they really haven't learned that, that uh, or getting that sense of perfection in their mind uh, medicine, and as you asked me before, I sort of digressed. You asked me before, what, what got me into medicine? Well, mm. sort of the, the whole 
responsibility aspect of what my uncle portrayed to me sort of got, sort of sent me in that direction. But the the medicine is a um, uh, uh, the education of medicine is kind of interesting. You go through four years of undergraduate school. You go through medical. It's very rote. They shove the information out, you regurgitate it out. There's there's really no room for deviation of thought or or trying to look at things differently. You basically follow the rules. And then it, then there's this transition. Why do some people go into surgery? Hmm. Should certain people go into surgery? So, for example, um, I learned at a young age – to play the piano. I was very good at it, but I had to read the music. Mm-hmm. Um, other people can play music by ear. It's very mm-hmm. easy for them. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that um, in surgery, there's a certain perceptual abilities that really, really good surgeons have. Mm. And others, no matter how they try, they're just not going to be as good as some. Mm. You know, so for example, um, if you can think in 3D, you'll be a good surgeon. If you can't, you'll never be a great surgeon. Right. There are certain innate, it's just like there are some people that can run the four minute mile. They're just built that way, right? Mm-hmm. And and people have certain perceptual abilities. There are certain people in mathematics that can multiply seven figures over in their head. Yeah. There is a, so it's a very interesting thought, isn't it, in terms of what what makes a really, really good surgeon, um, an orthopedic surgeon, putting the bones just in the right place, having mm. the perception of the angulation of the bones, or the plastic surgeon not pulling too hard, is a tactile sense. There's a whole bunch of things that go into um, what puts a plastic surgeon on the right end of the bell-shaped curve or in the middle mm. sometimes on on the unfortunate left end of it the a, a really interesting answer and as you were going through it lots of stuff was going on in my just blowing up in my head right so i'm very fascinated about the difference and i suppose the the spectrum maybe it's the wrong word but emotional intelligence and an iq and what i was picking up on when you talk about rote and learning you know you're regurgitating you need obviously good re- memory you need to, to good recall and there's probably a high level of iq on that when i was checking out on your website some of the testimonials one or one or two that i listened to were very clearly saying you were brilliant at listening and and being able to understand what the the patient wants and for me that's a very much an emotional intelligence skill or competency. So would you say there you're, you're high on, on the EQ side? Is that a, an area you've tried to develop over the years? Well, um, it, well it, if you're going to be in this business, you have to have that. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it, call it a skill, but you have to be on the listening side of what the patient wants so that so for example patient comes in and they want um to do a procedure okay let's say it's a chin implant or a rhinoplasty Mm -hmm. and um you say what exactly are they going to look like after the procedure 
what does the patient have in her his or her mind and what does the doctor and what does the surgeon have in his mind so the listening part is really important so that the the perception of the end result is is the same in terms of what the surgeon has in his mind and the patient has in his or her mind. Yeah. It's a very, you have to sort of evolve the conversation into what both people are thinking similarly in order to get it. So for example, if, if you, if you, the surgeon does what he wants and it may turn out to be a great result the patient may be unhappy with the great result because yeah. it wasn't what the patient wanted. Listening and understanding what the patient wants is key. You can be, again, the greatest surgeon in the world, but if you get the wrong result, very different from what the patient is thinking. So it's very important for the surgeon to understand and get into the head of the patient and understand what the patient is thinking about. Uh, uh, before under undergoing or or uh, you know undergoing any surgery, and that's um, I always give forty five minutes to an hour for any preoperative consultations. That's why I have a lot of problems with plastic surgery clinics. Right. You know, if you want this? Yeah, we'll give you this, and we'll assign Doctor X and give you that. I mean, it um, and if there's little time even spent in preparation. There's another another gizmo, for example, uh, which they have computer imaging where there's an assistant can actually show the patient what they're going to look like post-op. Mm. This is in the, in the mind of the assistant who draws a, a, a thing on a computer screen, which may not have any reality to what can and can't be done, based upon the skin type or if it's a revision or many other factors. So it, it's, a, I think, yes, you hit it. You actually were going in the right direction and really hit it on the head in that part, almost, almost a good part of getting a happy patient or a patient satisfied with the results of surgery is understanding exactly what the patient would like to see as the post-op result. Mm. Very good. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's interesting to hear the details on that. You also mentioned um, Hero. Is it the the sushi master? And you talked about tenacity. Um, I presume hard work, attention to detail, core values. Were they ones that you would connect yourself with as well? Do you have a a clear view on the, I guess, the core set of principles that you are guided by? Is that something that ring, resonates? Um, yeah, well, you, you hit all the key words, um, particularly if, if you go um, in a, in a counter-prevailing direction um, at one point in your career than the rest of medicine, right? You, you'll get derision, scorn, and a lot of criticism, particularly if you're introducing something new. So... Um, yeah, so all of those key words is, you know, how do you get through a new discovery in medicine and convince the medical community who initially their gut reaction is that they don't believe it? Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that has to do with not only the discovery, but tenacity, the 
determination, stamina, persistence, all of those key words in order to, for you to really get through, if you really believe in it and it's real, mm. um, trying to convince the medical community or surgical community uh, who has a counter-prevailing opinion of what you're doing is probably one of the most difficult things that I've encountered in my career. Yeah, and maybe I think from from looking again through your, your career and your bio, discovering Botox, that probably was one of those things, I'd imagine, was it? And, and how you were able to get that uh, counter-prevailing mindset turned around? Well, yeah, I mean, it... it, it that that hits the soft spot of of that whole uh, issue. So um, if you go back in your training, you're you're fed a lot of rote things. You go into surgery, everything is rote in surgery as well, um, mm-hmm. and um, it it takes a long time to learn what what is out there as the acceptable treatment for patients, and then all of a sudden, if in some part of your career, you find something that actually helps patients. So for example, Botox, I was doing it for wrinkles. Mm. And then I did a two year uh, project in my own office, using it in a similar way, discovering that it worked in migraine headaches. Well, at first, first couple of months, it didn't make any sense because of the known mechanism of action of how the drug worked just didn't make any sense, particularly right. for my. So to make a long story short, um, I did my own study, but you really, really have to believe in yourself to get up um, in front of, at, at the time, about two years later, when I knew it worked. The neurologist never heard of this. Mm. And I got up in front of the um, most famous headache experts in the world, and presented this as a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. Well, it was like Bob Dylan giving his first song, you know, be ready for the lettuces and tomatoes to be thrown at you. Um, it, it was not, it was, it was not a well accepted uh, uh, presentation by the neurologist that supposedly knew better. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of a very long and protracted um, I, I guess fight or, um, or uh, it, it was it was a um, project I would say. Uh, so I went around the country and taught. I taught the first three hundred neurologists how to inject, and then finally a group did believe it, and then it started to spread. And then we start. Then we got into expensive FDA clinical trials with the drug company. But um, but it was a 10-year process of really trying to convince established minds that, um, that there's uh, other ways to think about, about it. But it was all based on results. If you don't get the results, you can, you can stand there and talk until you're blue in the face. And it, it's, it's meaningless. It, it was the results that did it. And, um, and then showing people the right way. Uh, and the methodology in order in order to get those uh, results, sort of like um, uh, like Louis Pasteur, you know, his famous saying, 
um, uh, chance favors the prepared mind. So you, you've got to be looking for things that um, are a little different than what you've been taught. You've mm -hmm. got to think out of the box a little mm -hmm. bit. And then once you think out of, the out of the box and you actually discover something new, the invention of discovering something new, part of it is convincing the rest of the world that your new invention or your new, new way of thinking about things actually works. And it's not that it's correct, not that it's um, the best way to do things, but that it simply works. Mm. And if it works and it's simple and you can actually see that people are, can benefit from it or anything else that you invent. Um, and it, if it, if it's simple and it works, it'll be successful. Mm. I'm interested on though, how you manage to stay the course and how you, you know, the tenacity or that unwavering belief, where does that drive come from in you? Do you think? Um, that's a good question. Um, it, it, it really boils down to work ethic, you know, um, you know, my, my kids, you know, saw me growing up working on Sundays, you know, going in on Saturdays, you know, uh, I guess they could have called me a workaholic and, and, and it's really sacrifice. Um, you, you, you have to make up your mind that you're going to sacrifice some Sundays. You're going to sacrifice some, some baseball games and soccer games for your kids. And, and, um, uh, sometimes you have to make a choice and say, well, you know, I got a really great idea, but I, I just don't have time to really see it through. And a lot of things probably happen and go by the wayside because all of, uh, it, it, in order to really get to that vision of the end result, okay, of what you foresee as um, this invention actually working, mm. um, is um, is going to take it's a sacrifice of money, time, energy, uh, getting battered down by people that say you're out of your mind. This doesn't work, and it's it doesn't make sense, and it didn't make sense in the beginning based upon the uh, pathophysiology and the mechanism of action. But now we know otherwise. Mm. So, yeah, sacrifice, hard work, um, and um, uh, going toward the art of perfection. And mm. whatever you do, 150%. <laughs> Are you the type of person that when you're driven by that end result and, and obviously the, the benefit that it would bring to so many people – when you actually you're driven by the actual process and that when you get there, you know, the celebration of that is probably short lived and you're on to the next big challenge. Is that, is that how you might operate? Um, well, there's a, a whole bunch of things I did. Like, um, uh, it, it, again, you start thinking about things and, and, um, and you have to answer the question, does this make sense? So 20, 25 years, about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, this was sort of the basis for starting a medical device company. So um, I learned how to do facelifts. And one of the big problems that you saw in facelifts that patients came back is they had this very pulled and tight look mm -hmm. years ago. 
And um, at that time, we didn't have fillers and we didn't have a bunch of things. And I said, well, if you volumize the face, people look younger. Right? Real, this is simple, simple concept. <laughs> so I, it, you then have to find a way to volumize the face. There wasn't. So I designed and patented a facial implant. It was called the binder submalar implant. Okay. And what it did was it didn't necessarily produce better cheekbones in the, in the normal way people were thinking about it at the time. But it basically volumized the face, filled that out, and people looked younger. Right. Right? Really simple concept. Now, that's all you hear is volumizing the face. And now people are getting over-volumized with fillers. And actually, still to this day is the best way to do it. You know, but you have to be a surgeon to do it. And unfortunately, in spas and clinics and and sort of the rag magazines and National Enquirer have the worst plastic surgical pictures of people who are now overfilled. Right. But, but the filling of the face phenomenon was mine. I, it was, it, I wrote a whole bunch of papers on it and uh, it, it was sort of another counter prevailing uh, idea where I first presented it to 500 plastic surgeons who only knew how to do facelifts. And this whole idea of filling out the face instead of pulling it, Half of them thought it was a great idea, and I think half of them wanted to kill me because I was taking their facelifts. So it, it, it's always you always put yourself out there, and you're always exposed to criticism. So you 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 really have to, um, I guess in in British you have to have a stiff upper lip, yeah, uh, and and sort of take the criticism and then continue to persevere with your ideas and show and and go out there and show the world that that you're right that it works mm. and and if it's if you can show that it works and you can duplicate that with other people then pretty much it's a proof of concept if the proof of concept works each time then you pers- you just then go right down that line and just don't you don't let any any other people bother you with with a criticism that you know you're going to get from the medical community. Mm. I, it definitely sounds like you know criticism doesn't hold you back anyway. It probably spurs you on even more. Uh, I would imagine when when you went into surgery and plan- become a, a surgeon, I guess you had to go through a rigorous number of years learning that as well is there an element of that that you need to be creative and have a a a natural talent for it do you think yeah i think i think that uh, again getting back to that bell-shaped curve i i think that you can work hard at it really hard at it um it's like um but if you don't have that innate ability it's sort of um I can't multiply, but I really would like to go into math, you know? Mm. Well, I'm, I'm sure you that person could really work hard at it and they can go into mathematics and some kind of math uh, uh, type of field, but they'll never be really good at it. You know, they can work as hard as they want. They just don't have that innate ability in math. Same thing in surgery. If you don't have talent, you're not coordinated, you don't have the talent in your hands. There's an old saying in surgery, oh, that, that, that surgeon's got great hands. Mm-hmm. You know, that neurosurgeon's got 
great hands. He can do things that other surgeons can't. Well, that happens to be true. Mm. Happens to be true. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, if you're not really, if you don't have the talent, you don't have that facility in your hands, you don't have the three dimensional thinking in your brain. um, You'll be an okay surgeon. Mm -hmm. You'll never be a great surgeon. Mm. So yeah, there there are innate abilities and talents and, and things that um, come together to really pull people to that right side of the bell-shaped curve. And other people, no matter how they try, they're just, they just won't, won't get there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's just the way it is in everything. You know, mm-hmm. whether or not uh, you know, you're a, a great doctor, you know, or a great mathematician or a great runner, mm-hmm. uh, there are certain innate abilities that people have that make them truly, really, really good and some really great. Mm. Cool. Very interesting. When you talk, when you actually do surgery, when you carry out a procedure, like, are, are, do they range from, you know, minutes to hours in duration? Are they, they, what would the long end of the spectrum be there? You, you can do small procedures such as, you know, scar visions and things. Rhinoplasty noses usually take, um, they can take uh, two to four, four and a half hours, depending upon whether it's a revision surgery and you have to get grafts and things like that. So I'll take people who have had their noses done four times that right. are not, they're either destroyed or have to be rebuilt for some reason. Um, and then there's um, just routine facelifts. Uh, I, it, there's an old saying, I said, you know, um, it takes me, five hours to do a real facelift. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is with neck and two sides. If you're doing what you're supposed to do, uh, it was a company that's not in business anymore. It, was, it used to be called lifestyle lift. Right. And it said, Oh, you can go into the doctor during lunch and get a lifestyle lift. And they equated that with a facelift. Um, what well, I mean, you can do a tuck up and that can take me an hour. Um, you can do a medium facelift but if you do the real thing um uh and and you're really fast at it and there's no bleeding whatever Mm. still five hours to do all the work that's necessary to do the the facelift unfortunately the definition of facelifts people are going to describe a facelift and the 10 different types of facelift that people are doing Mm. and it's not necessarily the same yeah, so unfortunately, do people get shortchanged in terms of going to somebody that does facelift A versus another surgeon doing facelift B? Um, and they actually might be paying the same amount of money. Right. Um, it's just that it's a fact. It's just, and it also depends on the training and the experience of the surgeon doing it. Sure. And for those, say, five hours, right, when you're in that flow, would it be fair to say, or the question, I suppose, is how do you remain focused so kind of on the detail of all the, the tasks that you need to do then for that duration? It must be tough to, to keep the the mind and everything else working in harmony. And this kind of angle question, do you find it like a flow state? Are you kind of in the best place you're meant to be? Yeah, you, no, you're in rhythm. You just you just um, flow from the next part of the procedure to the next to the next. You basically have this 
flowchart in your brain. Mm. So, for example, in facelift, you'll start on the neck, and then you have to do the muscles. Then you finish that, and then you go to the other side, and then you go here, and then you go there, there, there. Then you have to sew up this area. So you have this flow chart in your mind, and you just move along from uh, step one to step two to step three. And, of course, there's variations from patient to patient, so you have to be prepared for that. So for thin skin, really thin skin patients, it's um, you, you're going to do something a little bit differently. And people who have thicker skin or on revisions, you might do something differently there. Um, and um, uh, so, I mean, not everything is the same, particularly noses. Mm. That's probably the most interesting of all. Noses mm. is, is always different for everyone. And, and you're effectively dealing with life or death in, in those sort of scenarios because I presume something could go wrong and it's, you know, it's catastrophic. How, how do you deal with the pressures of that? Well, that's really in preparation. So um, in, in my OR, I run an outpatient surgery center. It has three operating rooms. Mm-hmm. And we have very strict guidelines. And there are other operating rooms in the area that are um, not as qualified, per se. And we're certified by the highest organization here. It's very difficult to get a JCO certification. And with those certifications come that patients over X age has to have an EKG, a chest X-ray, all of the lab work that Mm -hmm. that their internist has to sign off, that they are cleared for the surgical procedure that is contemplated. If they don't have all that, if the patient is medically compromised in any way with diabetes or heart problems or whatever, they don't get through the, the door until they're worked up and they're cleared by the physician. Again, there's that bell-shaped curve. It, it doesn't happen in every outpatient. It should, but it doesn't happen in every place. And yes, under anesthesia, when patients put under anesthesia, it is life and death. Mm. And, um, and you also may, make sure you have the top anesthesiologists, that, that these are all board-certified board anesthesiologists, they're at the top of their game. And all of those um, components have to be in place so that I'm comfortable getting up in the morning knowing my patient is in good hands and anesthesia. My scrub techs are the same. Been, my scrub tech who's been with me for 15 years is there. Everything is, everything is done. There's no mistakes that are going to be made. You go back to that... that that movie hero dreams of sushi you know everything has got to be before we start to cut you mentioned perfection a few times during it do you believe in perfection is it something you're always striving for is that a motivator for you 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 have to you have to strive for for perfection um that's what that's a what keeps you out of trouble mm-hmm. you know if you if you operate long enough Trouble's going to be looking for you someday. I mean, you, you can do everything right and problems could arise. It's, it's how you deal with those problems and being prepared for as many problems that might occur over the course of, uh, you know, of a decade of doing surgery. Um, 
but um, and and you just never know. I mean, people can get idiosyncratic reactions to medications while they're on the table, and th- that is of no fault of the surgeon. Mm. But you want to make sure that everything in that operating room was there for any any potential eventuality. So, for example, malignant hyperthermia, if that ever occurs, it can happen out of the blue. Well, you have to have those medications on board if you're going to do surgery. That's just an example that you, you have to be prepared for everything you can think of. You're never going to be prepared for 100% of all problems all the time, but you can avoid some of the most common problems that might occur. And you also pre- must be prepared. Um, you have to prepare the patient, and then you're, you're, you're the captain of the ship. You have to have the... the the um, the people on the mast and people who are looking over the ship under your command to ensure that they're doing their job correctly. Mm-hmm. Because if anything happens, it's always on the uh, it's the surgeon that is responsible. Okay, very very good. When people come in looking for surgery, plastic surgery, and and alterations of whatever nature. I guess they're looking for improved self-esteem, self-worth. Are, are there things that you, you feel through the procedures they can actually gain? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, that's all part of the, what I call, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, particularly in this part of the world. Uh, people either do it for their profession, as in the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. um, where they have to look better or they have to get these wrinkles out or they have to look younger mm-hmm. uh, or they have to look different. Uh, we build mandibles and we had people saying, I want to look like Paul Newman. And before you would laugh at them. Now we have the techniques that actually can start to make them look like, uh, you know, certain people mm-hmm. uh, in terms of changing their, their bone structure. Um, but part of the game is t- to evaluate the patient in terms of having realistic or unrealistic expectations. Yeah. And you, you, you know, that's why, that's where the hour long preoperative consultation comes in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's up to you to evaluate the patient. If the patient has unrealistic expectations, you're in for a long, bad relationship Sure. with that patient before, during, and after the surgery, particularly after the surgery. Yeah. So obviously on, on many occasions, you would be at that point of initial consultation saying, you know, I think what your expectations are, we're not going to meet them. We probably go no further. Well, in my office, that is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If patient, patient is in world, world B and we're in world A, um, I just want to do the surgery. And, yeah. and you know, I, I get from my colleagues, you know, they'll come in here, you know, saying, listen, I got this problem patient. What do I do? So I, I being here for 30 years, you, you get some of the younger surgeons asking you once they get into problems, you know, and some of these, these are some of these are the problems that they'll come to you with. And I'll say, well, <laughs> when you, when you decided to do surgery on this patient, what, what did they want? I said, did you, did you really evaluate exactly, you know, 
where they were going and what you can do and you know instead of you know the 10 minutes that you that you spent with the patient so a lot of these problems are avoidable and then sometimes a couple of people slip through the cracks and they'll you know they said it, it's it's a tough business a rel- relatively tough business in order you're there to satisfy the whims of the patients and and part of the the toughest problem is to bring their expectations into reality of of what the results of the surgery is actually going to be Mm. And I, w- I would imagine that's where emotional intelligence and some of the the competencies come into play again. Going back to what we started with listening and and uh, negotiating and as was influencing their their uh, their views would probably tie up with that as well. In Beverly Hills, you've got like four hundred plastic surgeons in a radius of five or six blocks. Right. So you know they come in and say, "I I to do it Y and Z." They'll go to uh uh, over which which uh, really produces all of those horror stories and and and, and is probably one of the primary uh, motivators for lawsuits and malpractice suits. Um, it's not that the patient, the doctor, may have done the procedure poorly, but sometimes the patients who have these expectations unrealistic surgery is done they're unhappy and uh, that sort of and then the surgeon doesn't deal with the problem doesn't want to deal with the problem that actually promotes the uh, malpractice not that the, the, the patient has a basis the doctor but you know there's also a, 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 in, in California a lawyer on every street corner as well they'll, they'll <laughs> you know take the case they're there as well uh, so it, it's um yeah, and it all stems from sticking to the script. Mm-hmm. Is the patient realistic? Is the problem there? And, um, you know, that, that solves so many problems to begin with um, that, um, you know, the rest then becomes a lot easier. Very good. Maybe just finish up with a couple of uh, wrap-up questions. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given during your career that might stand out? What what comes to you when I ask that? I was a resident in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and um, my professor, who I give probably more credit to, his name is Dr. William Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N, who was one of the greatest teachers that I had the ability to, to work under and learn as much as I did at that time. And he was a wonderful guy, but he was, he was also very funny. And uh, he, he stopped, he, one day he stopped the surgery and, um, and looks around. He wasn't actually talking to me. He was talking to the chief resident. I was a chief resident at the time. And he said, who's your best friend in surgery? So the, Surgeon said, uh, my uh, assistant. He says, no, idiot. He says, well, the, the anesthesia, no, idiot. This one, no. He says, he said, it's fear and, and the anxiety. And he says, and once you lose that fear and anxiety, he said, you've lost your edge. Mm. Probably the best advice I ever heard. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And it's actually, the next question I had was, how do you deal with kind of stress and, and even fear and anxiety so that it doesn't 
become all-encompassing or engulf you? What, what are your t- approaches to dealing with Preoperative planning. So, for example, it, it, somebody has a scar, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a complicated scar, and you're going to do a scar revision. Mm. And um, you're going to operate. Some of these things are very complex, but you really got to think about it. So the night before, okay, if you don't do this, you're going to have anxiety going into the case. Well, you you, you figure out the Z-plasties or the W-plasties and the configurations going with the what's called relaxed tension lines, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And you sit down, you plan out that surgery. So you know exactly what you're going to be doing what you're going to be doing, going into the surgery, you've planned it out the night before. Mm. Well, that's your stress reducer right there. Mm. You know, you don't have the anxiety. You know exactly how you're going to do it. And sometimes you change it. And it takes, it takes 30 minutes to an hour of planning. Sometimes you, you look it up in the textbook. Yeah. But, um, but you have to delve into it and plan. That's actually some of the things that I found problematic with some of the new millennial doctors i mean the the it's sort of like um, having the encyclopedia britannica when you were younger mm-hmm. and now taking little excerpts out of the out of it and putting it on twitter and that's the depth at which people actually go in it's just like um you know what what does it take to find a really good doctor well today there was somebody joked that you might as well put some kind of a Twitter thing or an Instagram picture instead of a diploma on your wall. Yeah. People just don't really delve into and research things. They, they, everything is at a superficial level, Hmm. which is sort of problematic just in general. And I'm finding it more and more in the younger doctors. uh, Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And even from, you know, from a self-diagnosis perspective, everybody, here's something that might be wrong with them to go to Google and think they can diagnose themselves, which is problematic in, in its own right, for sure. Um, yep. Two quick ones. So lastly, um, if you weren't doing what you're doing, if you weren't a plastic surgeon, what, what would you be? What, what else would, would you have become? Do you think? That's a good question. Um, well, I, I, I would probably be in business. Okay. Um, uh, probably striving toward new things and trying to innovate in whatever business mm. or field I was in rather yeah. than just, um, uh, it, you know, what, what grows a business growing a business is always new innovation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, whatever I would, uh, whatever I was going to be doing, I would, I would do it and probably try to innovate. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I certainly can detect that from, from the conversation that innovation kind of runs runs right through no matter what you would do so uh that's interesting as we wrap up maybe give a shout out about how folks that listen can get in touch with you if they're interested to learn more if they potentially want to uh come in and get some work done maybe give a shout out there's uh my website is uh, info at drbinder.com that's d-o-c-t-o-r b-i-n-d-e-r Mm-hmm. dot com and you can email me there and okay. uh, the office phone number is um, uh, in the u.s uh, area code 310-858-6749 brilliant i will include those links into the to the notes when i put it out as well um 
it's been a pleasure talking to you. I've learned a lot about you and and what you what you do. It's uh, hopefully one that my listeners will enjoy and and viewers will enjoy and learn a little bit about as well. So so thanks for your time today, Doctor. I hope you have a, a great rest of the day. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you, Rob. And enjoy uh, golf in the old head of Kinsale when you come over in the summer. Oh, I will. I'm very jealous. I'm very jealous. <laughs> we'll have a couple of uh, shots of uh, Irish whiskey along with the golf. Have a great day. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Just before you go, I'd love to hear from you if anything specific stood out from that episode, something you might take away and try and implement in your own personal or professional life to help make you that little bit better on the other side is there anything you think i could do better to make the show even more enjoyable more impactful and maybe meaningful so drop me a note rob at rob of the or connect in on any of the social platforms at rob of the green we also have a community on facebook check that out if you're really enjoying the show maybe you could try and leave a rating or a review on itunes apple podcasts app go in there give us a rating let us know how we're doing that'll help with the ranking of the podcast up those charts the more folks that potentially see it because we're high up the better the more that might listen that never heard of it before and the goal of the show is to try and reach more and more people and have that impact more and more so that's down to you please do help me with that i'm not going down the route of hiring podcast promoters quote unquote from other parts of the world because they say they can help with the ranking and I don't really believe them or it's not very authentic. Help me do it in an authentic way. I'd really appreciate it. This year, I'm going more all in on Patreon. So it's three bucks a month. You can sign up, subscribe to Rob of the Green on Patreon.com. That will give you access to Patreon-only content. Nearly all the episodes of the 864 podcast are on there and new ones will be added only there. The 1% Better Show will have early releases there, but will still come out for free on robofthegreen.ie. There'll also be live shows this year, some phone-in shows, extra content. Three euros a month will hopefully, the more folks that subscribe, allow me to do more and more stuff on there, add more and more content. At the end of the day, that's the price of a pair of socks, maybe, that you might lose, or a coffee. One way or the other, it's up to you. If you want to join, you'll still get free stuff otherwise but if you're enjoying what we're doing help us grow help us expand it i'd really appreciate that adding new stuff onto the website all the time there's an affiliates page under the be better drop down check in there there's training courses that you can sign up to more and more stuff will come in over time into season three now of this fun fun journey huge learning hopefully you're getting something from it too stick with it let's keep going enjoy the journey even more have a great day week weekend and thanks for checking it out good luck